Thank you, Ken. Uh, good morning, church. It is good to see you all. Uh, after a work day yesterday, if you see some slow walking and people kind of stiff, uh, yesterday was, it was a big day of work here, and just want to express our gratitude. We had close to 50 folks show up. Um, I didn't even know there were that many here, because I was outside, and I thought there were about 25, 30 people, and then realized there were almost that many inside working. Uh, by the time we got to lunchtime, and started realizing how many people had shown up and just jumped in, um, and some had already come and left at that point. Um, it, was, it was a big day, and I just want to tell you how much that means to us as a church, um, it means to leadership here that you care that much um, about this place and what God is doing. And really, it ties in really nicely with the series we're in, Worship Is, because really yesterday was a day of worship. And we're going to see that in this series today, how it's so much more than the songs that we sing, um, but that worship is connected even to our serving. Like Serving is worship. And so it was so cool to watch you worship God through raking and shoveling and cleaning and pulling stuff out of closets and we even had volunteers here serving volunteers like there was just so much happening yesterday uh, it was a great day and so just super thankful for those of you who pitched in to help out um, well we are going to be in exodus 20 we'll start somewhere else and we'll land there um, as a primary text and so if you want to turn there you can um, just a couple of things so in the series um, we're walking through worship is we're allowing the scriptures to define what worship is so we're not just calling everything worship but we're also not limiting worship to just songs we sing i want to know what does worship look like do i have to wait till sunday at 9 30 a.m or sunday at 11 a.m to worship or is this something that can take place in my commute to work and in my home and at lunchtime my office and various places at the ball fields can worship happen in more spaces than just this one the answer is yes but we really need god's word to guide us in that so we're not calling things worship that's not worship uh, but we're also intentional and mindful of the things that are worship and so we're allowing the scriptures to define for us what worship is and then call us to worship really in all of life and today we're going to be looking at the role of the scriptures in worship and super challenging for me this was one of the hardest uh, sermon prep weeks I've had in a long time um, not because there isn't enough information it's like it's everything like it's all over the place like this is the the chief aim of of man is that we're aimed to worship God and and we're given all these descriptions of what worship looks like and all these instructions on what God wants worship to look like and and so like really this is ultimately what this book is aimed at for you is that you would worship that you would know God and you would exalt him and you would worship him and so there was so much ground to cover I had a hard time deciding what the Lord wanted us to do today in terms of like we got to land somewhere like I can't just talk well maybe I can just talk all day and just see who wants to leave and who wants to stay uh, but decided to land somewhere and, and I want to start here with just some things that we believe about um, the Bible I'm holding up a book it's leather bound you you assume that there's Bible verses inside there are um, this is a copy of the scriptures uh, we'll call this thing the Bible we'll call it the word of God we'll call it uh, the scriptures um, sometimes in the in the New Testament specifically it's referred to as the sacred writings and so what do we mean when we when we talk about the Bible being the word of God this is what we mean we mean that this book contains words that are representations of the words of God so you think of this this is the words of God written down okay so it's really important to understand that like 
We believe that every word in this book is a word of God, something God has inspired or spoken and, 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 and like led human authors to write down. We believe that the, the Bible is inspired, every word of it, like not just the, the, the parts that make me feel good or the parts I really like that get me excited, but all of it. Lamentations included, Songs of Solomon included, like all of it, inspired by the Holy Spirit that as human authors sat down to pen words on paper, the Holy Spirit of God was there and present working in the heart and the intentions and the motives of that human author to capture the words of God, inspired. We also believe that it's inerrant, it's without error. Like it is exactly in its original manuscripts, the way God intended it to be written down. It wasn't like God was inspiring Paul to write some things down and Paul wasn't listening and he moved on and God was like, that's all right, I'll tell them later. Like, no, everything God wanted these human authors to write down, they did, and everything they wrote down was intended by God and it's without error. Uh, we also believe it's infallible, that it accomplishes everything it promises it will accomplish. Everything that it sets out to accomplish, it accomplishes. I'm going to run through just a list of some of the things um, that the Bible claims to do for us. And this is what we believe as a church. The scriptures of the Bible show us who God is. We need a specific revelation. Romans 1 says you, could, you should be able to know who God is by just looking at what he made. Walking outside and you should be able to see his, his attributes and his character from looking at what has been made. And that is true, you can do that, but Romans 1 says, you know what, but that's not enough. That people still walked away from him, turned from him, and worshipped other things. We needed a specific revelation. We needed more than that. So yes, you can go out into, into creation as a believer with a new heart, new eyes, and you can see the Lord's fingerprints on all that has been made. It can even inspire you to worship. But we need a specific revelation to tell us who God is, the scriptures show us what God thinks of us. We've got some distorted views on what God thinks of us. How do we know? Is he mad at me? Is he disappointed in me? Am I on his nerves? How do I know what God thinks of me? The scriptures tell us that. The scriptures lead us to a restored relationship with God. The scriptures lead us to a restored relationship with one another. The scriptures teach us how to pray. The scriptures teach us how to trust in God. The scriptures show us the will of God. How can I know what the will of God is? He has inspired human authors without error to write down his will. They show us the will of God. The scriptures remind us of God's promises. The scriptures lead us to salvation. The scriptures sanctify us. The scriptures help us find and grow in wisdom. Boy, I need a lot of that. I heard that. The scriptures protect us from being deceived. The scriptures actually grow our faith. The scriptures keep us from sin. The scriptures fill us with hope, fill us with joy, fill us with peace. The scriptures revive our weary souls. The scriptures lead us to an abundant life. There's just a few things. Now, don't miss this, and this is going to be really important. When I say the scriptures do these things, what I really mean is God does that through the scriptures. Okay? The scriptures themselves are not the person. God is the person. He's chosen to reveal himself through his word. He's, chose to, he's chosen to work in our lives 
through his word. It is God leading us to salvation through the scriptures. And that'll be important in a minute when we get to the idea of idolatry. And so the question that I want to answer today, and I won't be able to fully answer it, is what role does the Bible play in worship? Okay, it's important. The scriptures have a a really important part of our time together that we call worship. We have songs written that have pieces of scripture in them or inspired by scripture. We have an elder come up and read the word over us. It's important for us to hear the words. I'm up here teaching whoever's up here out of the word. So we know it's important, but what specific role does the Bible play in worship? You might start here. Without the Bible, we don't even know who we're worshiping. Okay? We may not even know who it is. And so today what I want to do is I want to look at, I want to look at two examples where there's a public gathering and the word is read and what happens. Okay, one from the Old Testament. This is from Nehemiah. Uh, this is chapter 8, verses 5 and 6. Ezra is going to read the word of God before the people. Verse 5 says, And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, so he was elevated, kind of up on a platform or stage. And as he opened it, uh, as he opened it, all the people stood. So sometimes if you go to church, it says, hey, we stand for the reading of the word of God. This is an example of that. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people. Look at what the people do. They're just hearing the word being read. They answer what? Amen, amen, lifting up their hands. They bowed their heads, and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. So in this setting, the word of God is read aloud by Ezra. The people bless the Lord. They say amen. They lift up their hands. They bow their heads, and they worship the Lord with their faces to the ground. Fast forward to the New Testament. Jesus is in a synagogue, Luke chapter 4. He's going to do the same thing. In Luke 4, he's going to read from the scroll of Isaiah. So he takes the scroll and he opens it and he reads for the people. Verse 28 of Luke 4 says, When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. So Jesus is reading from the word of God, the scroll of Isaiah, to the people, filled with wrath, rose up, drove him out of town and tried to kill him. Two different responses. Right, so it's, it's not enough to just say, oh, all we need to do is just read the word, right? Like we see two situations where the word is read and, and this is where we get to that, play, that piece of the Bible where we say it's infallible. It never does nothing. But if, but if we're gonna include the word and, and try to discover the role of the word in our worship, what I wanna do is I wanna look at um, Exodus with you. Uh, we're gonna start in three and land in 20 because they're intimately connected, Okay. So we need some backstory, and then we're going to go to 20, and we're just going to sit there for the rest of our time. So in, let's do this. I want to just refresh with a slide I had last week and tell you um, what I love and don't love about it. Okay, so we talked last week about this idea of where worship comes from, 
Um, when we have God's presence, it goes before us, it comes after us, it encompasses us, and when we're in the presence of God, it brings our need to the surface. We saw this with Isaiah, right? Like, he's in the presence, Isaiah 6, the throne room of God, the presence of God's overwhelming, and his need for repentance is like, whew, I am undone. I am unclean. Everybody's unclean. So in the, in the presence of God, our need comes to the surface. God meets us in, in our need, and out from that flows gratitude and love and worship and obedience. And so the caution that I had last week, I'll say it again, this is not a chain reaction or a linear equation. Do this, get this. I just wanted us to see the relationship between these things. Right? We don't just start with worship. We start with the presence of God. We start with the goodness of God. We start with who we are worshiping. So two things to see. One, I almost feel like worship and obedience should be switched now after my study this week because we're going to see that there's an obedience in worship, that God actually commands us to worship a certain way. And when you're worshiping, worship him that way, you're actually obeying, right? And there's this relationship between like gratitude and love that, 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 are, that are intimately connected to one another. And so really, but here's the thing, sometimes we don't even know what we need until we're worshiping. So it's not a linear equation. I just want us to see the relationship between these things that for us to worship, for us to gather in worship, all of these elements are involved. We'll see through this series really just how needy we actually are. That we were actually created in need. Need, need isn't just the result of the fall. There's need in you and me before the fall. Gratitude, love, obedience, all connected. All right, so in Exodus uh, chapter 3, verse 1, um, this is where uh, God is going to show up with his presence to Moses. It's a really sacred moment. Verse 1 says, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. This is the burning bush story. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it wasn't consumed. Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. And when the Lord saw, he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush. Moses, Moses. He said to him, here I am. We saw that reaction in Isaiah, didn't we, last week? Here I am, send me. Here I am, I'm here. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. He is in the presence of God, and he is overwhelmed. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. I know my people are in need. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, 
the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. I hear their cry for mercy. I hear their cry to be rescued. And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. So here we have this presence of God overwhelming Moses bringing the need of God's people to the forefront and God simply just saying, I see what they need. Before he ever does anything to rescue them, God is just giving his presence. So we know, if you know the rest of the story, God delivers uh, the people from Egypt. He guides them through the wilderness with his presence, a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Whenever you see these things, Israel, you know that's me. Follow me. Follow my presence. And then there's some real sweet moments where he gives his presence in a really specific way. And this is what's going to take us to Exodus 20. This is where we're going to spend the rest of our time today. So in Exodus 20, this is the passage that Ken read. If you want to go ahead and turn there, if you haven't yet, you can do that. Exodus chapter 20. This is the section of the scriptures that we refer to as the Ten Commandments. So we know there's, there's an obedience connection to what we're about to read. God's calling his people, he's calling us to do something or not do something. Okay? So there's an obedience connection here. But look at where God starts in verse 1. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So we started in Exodus 3, God showing up with his presence and saying, I see what you need, I see your slavery, I see your suffering. And here, right, God is showing up with them in a very specific way, showing up for the people of God. He's saying, hey, I'm the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt, I am the one who met you in your deepest need. And this is out from here now comes our Ten Commandments. Starting in verse 3, the first is this. You shall have no other gods before me. And really the next three commandments, at least two of the next three, are going to help us understand that command. But this idea of before, it's like before my face, before me. Not like in reference to time, this happened before that. You shall have no other gods before you come to me. He's saying, hey, don't bring your other gods in front of my face. I only want you, I don't want you to bring any other idols, any other objects of worship, any other gods into my presence. I just want you. Just you. You show up. I want you before my face. You shall have no other gods before me. Now in verse 4, he's going to give a second commandment that's going to be related. He says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. So something you can make with your own hands or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. So stop. He's referring to really good things that he created. He's saying, listen, 
Don't worship things you can make with your own hands. Don't worship what you can do for yourself. Even good things, which we'll see together, can become idols. Even good things can become these objects of worship. He'll go on to say, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers of the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. And here we have this connection between love and obedience. Even Jesus says that if we actually love him, we will keep his commandments. And so here God is saying, as he says, hey, have no other gods before me. Don't make things with your own hands. Don't, don't take what you can do with your own hands and bow down to it. The uh, Psalms describe idol worship this way. Psalm 115 verse 4 says this. Speaking of those who worship idols, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands, they have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see, they have ears they do not hear, noses that do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. They look like they should do things but they can't. They look like they should do things for you but they can't. They actually are making promises with their outward appearance that they can't deliver for you. They promise peace, they promise security, they promise happiness, they promise healing, but they can't do those things for you. These idols that you worship, they look like they should be able to do something for you, but they can't. Verse 8, those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. I'm going to go back to this jealousy piece. I am a jealous God. He's jealous. Not only does he not want us to bring any kind of false idol into his presence, he just wants us but did you hear the psalm's description of what happens when we worship? We become like the thing we worship. Oh, we were created to look like who? Like him, image bearers. So he's jealous for our worship because in our worship, we become like the thing we worship. He doesn't want you to look like any other God. He wants you to look like him. And when he makes promises, he keeps them. He has eyes and he can see. He has ears he can hear. He has a mouth he can speak. He has hands and he can do things. He fulfills the promises that he makes to you. And he is jealous for your worship and your affection. The next commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Most of us um, who've heard that over the course of our lifetime interpret that as, oh, okay, so don't use God's name when I cuss. Now, that could certainly be an example of using the Lord's name in vain, but it means more than that. If that's our only application, we'll actually miss, I think, the main point here. What's interesting is, as God gives this commandment on how we handle his name, he uses his name. For you shall not take the name of who? The Lord, your God. So Lord here is Yahweh. And God is 
Elohim. Now, the Elohim piece is, is the word, Hebrew word for God. It could be used to talk about anything that is a God, any God, but this is a specific God. This is Yahweh, your God. Okay, it's really important. And this word Yahweh is this really interesting word. It's, it's a struggle to translate it because it, it means like to exist or to always exist. Like that's a functional understanding of this word, this name that God calls himself by and he tells us to call him by. It's either that, he, it's actually both of these, it's that he has always existed, but he's also the source of existence. So I think about, I was talking with one of my sons this week about creation and the difference between a secular worldview versus creation. So the idea of either the world was created by an intelligent designer, Yahweh, or it all happened circumstantially with the right conditions coming together at the right time. And I said, here's the struggle that I have with just that theory, whether it's a Big Bang or some other option, is that you can't explain how nothing can become something. Existence. Yeah, but where, where was it before that? And where was it before that? And where did it come from? And then, not only that, but then once it becomes something, how does it become alive? Like the statistical probability of just all the right ingredients coming together for just like a, a, a protein. Like it's just, right, it's so phenomenal. And, and what God tells us to call him reminds us that our very existence comes out of who he is. And God has a specific name. It's okay. He actually has a lot of names he goes by in the Bible. We can call him God. We call him Savior, Redeemer. We call him by other names. But he says, do not take my name in vain. And he calls himself Yahweh. I was trying to think of like an example. I, I have a bunch of names. You probably have a bunch of names. Um, one place that I go to at least once a week is the school where my boys go to school and I actually have a bunch of names on that campus. Um, the most popular name I have is Hudson and Calvin's dad, right? So if somebody says, oh, you're Hudson and Calvin's dad, I'm like, yeah, you don't know me. You only know who I am in connection with my sons. That's fine. I, I love them. They're super cool. I'm, I'm okay being known as their dad, but that's, I'm more than that. Some people will call me uh, coach Williams, because I got to coach one of the baseball teams last year. So some will call me Coach Williams. And so I, I know by that name how you know me and what our connection is. Some will call me Mr. Williams. And when I hear that name, um, most of the students who call me that know me from a retreat I spoke at and they, where they called me Mr. Williams. So I'm like, if I hear that name, I'm like, oh, you were a student at a retreat where I spoke and that's how you know my last name is Mr. Mr. Williams. But then... Some people will call me Jason. And if I'm on the campus where my boys go to school and somebody uses the name Jason, I know they know me. Like they know me apart from those things. And there aren't a ton of people there who know me, but if I hear Jason, it's like, it's my wife. Or it's maybe one of the other faculty members that I've gotten to know, but it's a select few. And when they use the name Jason, it automatically makes me feel like this person knows me and I have a relationship with them. And so it's interesting because we can call God by a lot of names and it's appropriate to do so. But he has a name that when we call him by that name, it implies that we actually know who we're talking about. 
if we just call him God solely, that doesn't necessarily define who you're talking about. It's okay to call him that. It's okay to pray and call him God. But here, God says, I want you to call me Yahweh, your God. You can call me these other names that are accurate and true, but don't forget this one. Because when you call me by this name, it implies that you know who I am. I'm not a generic God who can be confused with Allah or some Buddha or some other mystical reference. You know the one you're talking to. The one who has always existed and from whom all existence comes. And do not take my name in vain. This idea of vain is to take his name in a way that's empty or false. Okay, so empty, meaning this is the idea from last week where they were, they were honoring the Lord with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. Empty. Like if you're going to use his name, connect it to, to what you believe is true about him and what you feel about him, and right? Integrated, like I'm not just saying his name. I'm actually like thinking about it. I'm, I'm engaging in what I believe. I'm engaging my affection and my reverence towards him, and I use his name that way. So it's not empty, um, but it's also not false. I'm not calling things God that aren't God. This happens a lot. And it's oftentimes connected to special revelation that somebody might have. God really wants me to do this. God spoke to me. And, and here's the thing. I want you to have the kind of relationship with God where you listen. We'll actually spend a Sunday talking about that piece of it. And God does speak to us as a loving father speaks to his children. How do we recognize his voice, though? Apart from ours or the voice of our dad rolling around in our head or somebody else. Like, how do we know which voice is his? Which brings us, it'll bring us back to here, which is really good. But he's saying, hey, I want you to be cautious. Don't just call everything me. Don't just associate my name with everything and call it God. Not only should it not be empty when you use my name, it should also not be false. Make sure it's me if you're going to call it by name. Um, I was talking to my oldest son, who's got a lot of interest in playing guitar and leading worship, and we were talking um, a few months ago about how we select songs to lead people in worship. And I was just asking, like, hey, you know, how do you, how do you pick which songs you like? Is it, you know, you like the tune? Is there something special about the words? And he was just talking, he was asking me. I said, well, here's a, here's a criteria. Um, if you could take the same song and sing it about that girl you like at school, it's probably not specific enough. Okay? Like, I think in a personal way, if like you're saying, hey, like in my prayer time, my time with the Lord, those words apply and I want to use them to, to, to reflect my worship and adoration of God, it's fine. When you're leading other people, though, we need to know who we're singing about and singing to. So if the same lyrics could be extracted and applied to Allah, right, because it's so generic and general, we aren't clear who we're talking about. I know that's the criteria, one of the criteria that Jason Martin and Evan and the crew use in the songs they lead us in. Does it tell us specifically who we are singing about and who we are singing to? In Christ alone, there's no mistake who we are singing about. And so then the next command, starting in verse 8, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you 
or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, your sojourner who is with you or within your gates. For in six days, the Lord made the heaven and earth. This is really important. We call this the day of rest, but it's not meant to be solely a day of recovery. Those are two different things. We don't rest because we've overcommitted ourselves and we've worn ourselves out and we've made it to the end of the finish line and we collapse so that we can pick ourselves back up the next day and go do the same thing. That's recovery. We rest because he rested. God was not exhausted after six days of creation. You see what I'm talking about? So the idea of the Sabbath isn't just so that we can just run frantically through life and every once in a while collapse for a few minutes, regain our breath, get some energy back, and then go hard again. The idea is, no, that you'd be more intentional with this. And I love this idea of rest. We won't fully, fully unpack it here, but just some things to think about. So in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy, set apart. So this day of rest is actually connected to the idea of worship. God's people have historically worshiped on the Sabbath. In the Old Testament, that was on Saturday, the Sabbath. So they would work Sunday through Friday, and then part of their worship was to set apart one day and, and, and rest from working and, and give worship to God. In the New Testament, that gets moved to Sunday because the resurrec- resurrection happens on a Sunday, so the Sabbath gets moved to Sunday. And Paul addresses this in Romans 14. He's like, hey, hey let's quit arguing over what day it is. Just pick one. Set aside a day, set apart to rest, to give your affections and your attention to the Lord. We think about that rest piece. The idea is this, that when I rest, I'm doing two things. One, I'm taking inventory on the goodness of God and what he's done. I stop on the seventh day and I look back at the previous six and I take inventory on the goodness of God. And out of that wells up what? Gratitude. See how this is connecting to worship? And... I started thinking about the week ahead. And I started thinking about Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and all that will come, and this gives me an opportunity to trust in the Lord. And that's also a part of worship. Gratitude and trust. And so we have in our calendar a day set aside to stir up worship. I want to read specifically kind of what I wrote here as a conclusion. The Word of God, this Bible, the Scriptures, the sacred writings, reminds us of who God is and what God has done. That's where he started the Ten Commandments. Hey, let me remind you who I am and what I've done for you. It leads us to salvation and a restored relationship with him. And with our relationship with God restored, we're able to see God for who he is and reflect on his goodness and kindness towards us. And this evokes, stirs up reverence, adoration, gratitude, and love in our hearts towards God. Worship happens when we take those inward affections and we display them in our outward actions towards God. Not only does the word of God evoke or stir up worship, it also describes, this is important, how God desires for us to express our worship. 
He doesn't just command us to worship. He says, worship me like this. Pause. I just covered four commandments. Um, There's a lot more that God prescribes and describes for worship. We're also called to worship God with singing, with praise, with rejoicing, with shouting, with clapping, standing, kneeling, cymbals and instruments. We're told in the New Testament to sing with one another and to one another. We worship. Like there's a lot more than this. This was my struggle this week. Like where do I land here? Right? But here's the point. God doesn't say just go worship me however you feel. He says I want to be worshipped this way. When you worship this way, it identifies who I am. It brings glory to my name. So it not only stirs up worship when we open the word and we see who God is, it tells us how God wants us to express this worship. And then when we express it that way, oh look, we're walking in obedience. You see the connection there? Again. God desires for our worship to be aimed at him and him alone, not the Bible. This can become an idol. Okay, this can become your object of worship and you've missed God. Don't bring any other gods before me, including your study Bible. You and you alone. God works through his word show you who he is, to stir up worship in you, tell you how to be worshipped. But he's not calling you to worship this, he's calling you to worship him. And when we come before his presence in worship, he instructs us to leave all other false gods and idols behind, to identify him as the one true God, and to rest in his presence. Okay? Now, we're going to spend a lot of time in this series looking at different ways we worship God, and all those different ways are going to be rooted in what? The Scripture. So this is just like getting started, like a foundation for understanding the role of Scripture in our worship. I want to end with a couple of things. One, some questions for reflection. We do this almost every Sunday, um, but I'm going to do prayer time a little bit different today when we get there, and I'll explain that. But before we, before we do that, just some questions for you to think about. How important is the Word of God in your everyday life? How important is it to you? Okay, so notice I didn't ask you how many days out of the last seven days did you have your quiet time? Okay, if we're not cautious, we'll make that into the thing we do and we'll miss God. We just check it off. So the question is, how important is this in your everyday life? Because if it's important to us, it's going to show up and we're going to grab it. We're going to open it. We're going to read it more than just during our devotion time or quiet time, right? It's going to show up. So how important is the Word of God in your daily life? How has the Word of God shaped your worship? Like even before this series, can you think about something you read or somebody pointed out in here, you're like, whoa, that changes things. And how has the Word shaped your worship? Maybe he's doing that today. How has the Word of God shaped how you see God for who he really is? Have you been through a theological crisis yet? Turns out God isn't who I thought he was. How do you know that? Because you saw him. How has the word shaped how you see God for who he really is?
And this one may be a little bit harder, but something to think about this week. Maybe you would look for this. What are some of the false idols in your life that compete for God's rightful place in your heart? We did a whole series on this, and it takes some work to really pay attention to things. What, when you get unsteady, when you get uncomfortable, when you get nervous or insecure, what do you reach for? To get security and peace and joy. Pay attention to those things. There'll be some idols in your life that you're not even realizing. You're latching onto for security, and God says, I want you to latch onto me for security. And don't bring those things before me. You don't need me and those things, you just need me. And the last question is this, do you set aside an intentional day and time to rest in the Lord's provision? Do you do that? Not legalistically, don't show me your calendar after the service is done, just asking. Like, do you have the kind of life, are you stewarding your life in a kind of way where you could actually do this? and Set aside time on an intentional day, say, you know, this is going to be a time of worship. Do you have a Sabbath? Do you rest in the Lord? I want to read um, from Psalms as we pray together. I just want to pray scripture first. Um, from Psalm uh, 119. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Psalm 119. It's a psalm that's primarily about the Word of God, and it's really long. And I typically will read like 30, 40 verses in, and it's like, this is so good, and I stop. I seldom finish Psalm 119. This week, I, I kind of forced myself or committed myself to finish it. I want to see what else is in there. Turns out the whole psalm is full of beautiful descriptions of the Word of God and the connection between the Word of God and my need and the connection between the Word of God and my worship. And so I'm just going to pull a couple of verses out here to read over us as we pray together. I'll lead us in prayer. Um, our worship team will come out just like normal. We'll have prayer partners at the front. We'll have elders out in the commons. But let me read this as we pray together. So if you just want to go into that posture of prayer right now, this is from Psalm 119. I'll give you a moment just to let your heart, your mind get quiet. If you want to close your eyes, you can do that. And then we're going to hear the word of the Lord together. With my whole heart I cry, answer me, O Lord. I will keep your statutes. I call to you, save me, that I may observe your testimonies. I rise before the dawn and cry for help. I hope in your words. Great is your mercy, O Lord. Give me life according to your rules. Consider, oh, consider how I love your precepts. Give me life according to your steadfast love. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Father, we thank you for your word. We confess, O oh God, that we don't read it often enough, we don't rely on it often enough, we don't go to it often enough, we don't reach for it often enough. 
And the sad reality is not that we missed out on Bible reading. The sad reality is that we miss out on a specific time in your presence through your word. God, we don't want to be a church that ignores your word, but nor do we want to be a church that worships your word. We want to be a church that worships you. God, we want to be, we want to pay attention. We want to read. We want to study. We want to give our minds to opening your word, God, that we might find you, that we might experience your presence. To be a people that moves boldly and confidently into the throne room of your presence to find help in our time of need. Father, we don't want worship to be a word that describes our actions. We want worship to be a word that describes our our heart's posture. We want worship to be the description of your people. Knowing you, honoring you, adoring you, revering you, lifting you up. Oh God, We don't want our worship to simply be music or actions or activities. We want want our worship to be part of our relationship with you. We want to know who it is we're singing about. We want to know who it is we're singing to. So Father, now we ask for your presence, the gift of your presence, God. That right now in your presence, our needs would come to the surface and we would bring those needs to you. God, in your presence, our hearts would be full of gratitude and love and a desire for obedience. And Father, we would bring that to you now. We pray all these things in the powerful 